Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Good morning, everybody. And good morning again, I guess I should say. To those of you that are in the room, we're glad to have you with us this morning at 8 o'clock. As you're aware, or I think you're aware, we've adjusted our church schedule over the last couple of weeks. And so our uh, Wednesday night is now returned to a Bible study format. By the way, some of you came, and I was blown away by how many people did come. We had this room, I wouldn't say full, but there were a lot more people than I expected. So if you want to join us Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, then you might want to come a few minutes early to make sure sure you get a place. It was a wonderful uh, beginning back to our Bible study time. And then this service, the 8 o'clock service right now, is the one that we're recording. So those those of you that are watching at home at 11 o'clock, this is the same day, and we're glad to have you uh, join us for worship and. Uh, we would invite you to join us back here in the room. We have plenty of space for you here at the 8 o'clock service. A little less space at 9.30 and 11, but there's still plenty of seats if you'd like to join us for our worship services. So we're, we're glad to have you and looking forward to this week as we open up Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm always a little bit um, more nervous, I guess, in one sense, when I speak on a subject that is primarily about my responsibility in the life of the church, whether it's preaching or whether it's character, or in this particular instance, Paul gives a list of qualifications for the office of pastor or overseer. And so as I read through this and thought through this and studied through this, I wanted to make sure that I got the right sense of not only what you needed to hear as a congregation, but also what I needed to be reminded of and convicted of in my own soul and in my own life. I thought about how would I I start this service. So I thought I'd start by telling you how I experienced a call to vocational ministry, what God did in my life to bring me to the place where 23 years later or so I'd be standing in a pulpit preaching to a congregation of people. I grew up in the home of a pastor. I've told you that on more than one occasion. And I've heard the gospel, heard the gospel as a child, as a teenager, And it would be very safe to say that I had an intellectual belief in the facts of the gospel, an intellectual assent that the gospel and its facts were true. But there was something missing in my soul as a a child and as a young teenager. I struggled with that. And for me, what I tried to do to replace that hole that was in my heart is I tried to do good things. I can remember as an as a, as 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, started opening the Bible and reading it every single day. I started studying Scripture and reading Christian books, and I started teaching when I had opportunities in classes. And I remember as an 11-year-old even surrendering to preach because I was trying to fill a void in my life. I was trying to put something back into uh, that void to make sure that I was right with God. And I did that for six years, from the time I was about 11 to the time I was 18, a little over six years. I tried to fill that void with all sort of good things. Going on mission trips and preaching and teaching and all the things that you would think would make up a good Christian. The problem was... None of us, myself included, can feel the unrighteousness in our own lives by the good things that we do. Our self-righteousness, the Bible describes as like filthy rags compared with the holiness uh, that God expects of us. 
So during the, that period of searching and conviction and, and uncertainty and self-righteousness in my own life, God brought me to a place where he helped me see that my problem was that I was trying to do what only God can do. I couldn't forgive my own sins. I couldn't make myself righteous. Only God could save me and only God can make me righteous. So on my 18th birthday, I was at a youth camp in Liberty University. I was uh, there with another church youth group. And I talked with God about what I was going to do and this uh, hovering uncertainty in my own soul and how that was going to get solved. I talked with God and made a commitment to Him and said, God, whatever you're telling me to do, I'll do. And in, in my mind, I was kind of thinking God's going to tell me to do something else, go on the mission field or something along those lines. And God made it abundantly clear that week at camp, that Wednesday that happened to be my 18th birthday, that my problem was that I was trying to earn my salvation on my own, that I needed the forgiveness of God. So that evening when I went down at the invitation, I confessed my sins and asked God alone to forgive me. What God did in that moment is what many of you have experienced in your faith relationship with Jesus Christ. God came into your life and He forgave you and He cleansed you. He forgave me. He cleansed me. He made me new as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about. We're a new creation. And from that very moment of conversion, I knew that I could do nothing else than serve God in vocational ministry. I don't know why in my case... God made that abundantly clear to me at conversion, but He did. He made it clear to me that what He wanted me to do was serve in some kind of ministerial role, vocational pastoral role. So I stand before you today, 23 years after that event, uh, 23 and a half years or so after that event, and I get a chance to preach for the very first time on 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, which is what Paul says should be the qualifications for those who would serve in pastoral ministry. Read with me this text, if you will. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. Again, he's done that before. He did that in chapter 1. It's an indication of the importance of what he's about to write. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So what I'd like you to do is consider with me uh, three specific uh, considerations about the pastor and his office, his character's responsibility in the life of the church. First, consider the office of overseer. Paul uses the word of anyone, that is, if someone were to desire to be an overseer, and the word overseer in this particular instance is the word episkopos, it's used in several other places in the New Testament. carries with it the idea of overseeing the responsibilities of the church. Peter uses this same word in 1 Peter chapter 5. If anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In the New Testament, there are three words that are used interchangeably for what it is that a pastor's role is to become, or the office of pastor. 
One is episkopos, which is overseer. Essentially, this means that the, the pastor or the leader of the church is responsible for the ministries and the programs and the mission of the church. It doesn't mean he does everything, because the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, but he's responsible for all of those things. Another word that is used interchangeably with episkopos, Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 5, is the word elder or presbyteros. Paul uses these words interchangeably if you look in Acts chapter 20. So presbyteros, which is elder, and episkopos, which is overseer, essentially refer to the same office. So they're, 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 they're basically the same thing in the New Testament understanding, just different words for the same task. We're most comfortable in Baptist life in the 21st century with the word pastor. That's what you, most of you call me. That's my title here. But that word is only used a time or two in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 is one of those. And it carries with it the idea of shepherding. So if you read through the pages of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, and you see overseer or you see elder, and really what you just need to think of is that's a pastor. That's the responsibility, the office of pastor. In this instance, Paul is referring to the office. So he's explaining it in a singular format. But one of the things you'll notice if you look in Acts chapter 20, also in 1 Timothy 4 and 5, when Paul uses this in other instances, such as elder, he uses it in the plural, giving an indication that there are to be more than one pastor in the life of a church. That's pretty typical New Testament. In a couple weeks, I'm going to come back and preach a sermon on that very subject. Uh, That'll be two weeks from today. Nevertheless, you consider the office of overseer. And what is that office? It's a noble task. Paul says it is a beautiful task. It's it's a task and a responsibility that is is wonderful. And I'll be honest with you, uh, it is a tremendous privilege to serve as a pastor. I take this responsibility very seriously. And there are some difficulties. It's not easy to walk through with a family through uh, the last days and stages of death. It's not easy to care for a congregation member or a family when they're going through marital strife. It's not easy to to work through the last couple of years where, where we had to deal with many changes to our normalcy through a pandemic. But the privileges and the glories of serving as a pastor, this noble task that Paul talks about far outweigh the challenges that it brings. The opportunity to lead someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ where their eternity is now not going to hell but spending forever in heaven. The privilege to baptize like we're going to do in just a little bit in our third service today. The opportunity to open up God's Word and and my calling and responsibility weekly is to study the Bible. I get a chance to look at a whole list of commentaries and read passages of Scripture and dive into the most important words that have ever been written in the pages of human history, words of God through men uh, in, in ages past to us that are authoritative, infallible, inerrant, and important for us as followers of Jesus. I get to do that every single week. I get to talk with people and encourage, encourage folks, consider the office of an overseer. It's a noble aspiration. It's interesting the way Paul would describe it here. There is a calling. In other words, there's a subjective sense that God has to say, you're assigned to this task. I didn't decide that for myself. It wasn't just something I woke up with one day and say, oh, I'd like to do what my dad does. I'd like to pastor. I believe God impressed that desire upon my heart. 
And I think for anyone, whether in this congregation or in our church or anyone else who would experience a calling to the ministry, there is with it, as Paul describes here, a desire to that, an aspiration to that, a longing for that. I think there, that can come from an internal sense of qualification, recognizing this is what God wants, or can come from the Holy Spirit drafting you and saying, this is what you're going to do with your life. I get a chance to teach some of those guys at Bible college, and I love to hear their stories, how God drafted them as a teenager, and they ran for 15 years, and now they're back, finally fulfilling what God expected of them years prior. If anyone desires the office of overseer, not just consider the office, that's, that's the kind of overarching picture here. But the primary place that Paul spends most of his time in this text is in the next section. He says we need to consider the character and the competencies of the overseer. In other words, what, what is an overseer to be like? How is he to act? And one way we can think of this, though I, don't, I hope you, we as a church don't have to go through this anytime soon, if you're looking for a pastor... This is the text that we ought to look at to determine whether someone is qualified to serve in the role of pastor. It's a qualification list. Oftentimes, we've used this as a checklist, meaning that you go down this list, okay, he's got this, he's got this, he doesn't have this, so he's not qualified. It's not a checklist in the sense of these all have to be true in the specific way, in the specific instance that it's used. What Paul's saying is these, this is the way, the character of the person that ought to be a pastor, and, and that'll make more sense in just a moment. I'm going to break it down the way John Stott broke it down in his commentary. He broke down all of these different categories into ten specific character dimensions uh, that a pastor should exhibit. The overarching one is that he's to be above reproach. That's kind of the general statement. The pastor, the overseer, is to be above reproach. And, and you can't go very far in Christian living without hearing of another pastor who's been asked to resign his church because of pride or embezzlement, pastors who've been fired because of immorality, uh, leaders who have checked out of the ministry because they stopped believing what they were teaching on Sundays. I mean, you can go all, I, I hear it all the time of pastors who are no longer in pastoral ministry. And I think sometimes that's because pastors lose sight of this is an expectation that should be consistently uh, uh, defined, should consistently define one's life. In other words, just because I had these qualifications at some point in my past doesn't mean I don't need to continue working on these character traits in my present and in my future as a minister. So what are these qualifications? Above reproach. Above reproach how? Let's look at 10 areas where the pastor is to be above reproach. First, his marital fidelity, the phrase, the husband of one wife. Now, over the years, this has been a very debated phrase. It's used in the very same way in the next section, talking about deacons serving as or being the husband of one wife. And some have used this to say that a divorced man is disqualified from being a pastor or a divorced man is disqualified from being a deacon. But what does this phrase really mean? Uh, what, what is Paul getting at here? Technically, or the way we can best describe it is he's saying that the pastor should be a one-woman man. In other words, he should be faithful. His character should be one of faithfulness, a fidelity to the spouse that God gave him. It doesn't mean that divorce can't disqualify a man from serving in the ministry. I think it could. 
But just because a man was divorced before conversion because his wife cheated on him doesn't automatically mean that the husband, the, the, the man who then God might call to ministry, is absolutely disqualified from that role if he was the one that was faithful, if he's the one that is godly, if he's the one that is right. And I know other churches who have struggled with this. One of, one of uh, my professors at Freeland Baptist Bible College years ago, his wife left him in the middle of his ministry, pastoring a wonderful church there in Henderson County. His wife decided she no longer wanted to be a pastor's wife. And he wrestled with this text. The church wrestled with this text. What does it mean? And it means that the pastor is to be one who is faithful, simply in his marriage covenant. So his marital fidelity. R. Ken Hughes and Brian Chappell put it this way. It's not the quantitative that we should focus on in the text, like, one, like the pastor has been married twice. Maybe it was a widow, his wife died, or divorced. But the qualitative, in other words, who is this man now? Is he a one-woman man? That's the implication here. His marital fidelity. Another area where the pastor should be qualified is his self-mastery. The words sober, self-controlled, and respectable all get at this very idea If a pastor can't be self-disciplined, then how in the world can he be disciplined enough to lead a congregation of believers? That's essentially what he's talking about. Uh, The the overseer should have mastery over himself. He, He should not be someone prone to laziness. He should not be someone prone to dishonorable acts. He should not be someone who you can't get away from a, uh, a video game system in order to lead the church. And I, I say this kind of humorously, I know of a church years ago where the the pastor was asked to step down from his role in ministry because he was playing Xbox all day. You know, I'm not saying it's wrong to ever play a video game. I don't mean it in that sense. But the the pastor ought to be able to discipline his own time, his self-mastery. His hospitality is the next thing that Paul reflects on. The ancient world did not have holiday inns or Hampton inns. There, There wasn't a way... In the ancient world, for you to stay somewhere in a safe space, in a safe place, by by getting a hotel room that just wasn't typical. So, what the Jewish culture did, as well as the Greco-Roman culture and the early Christian culture, they opened their homes up uh, for traveling ministers, preachers, Christians, servants across the world, and and this is still practiced in life today. Not as common, but the pastor should be hospitable. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you, okay? I'm not going to tell you all the areas where I struggle with this list. That wouldn't do you good or me good in this, in this sermon. This isn't a confessional situation. But let me tell you one of these. When I go home, I, I feel like my home is the place for me to yell at the TV when I'm watching a, a basketball game. You know, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of my place of reprieve. All right? I'm glad God gave me a wife who who wants our home to be a place that's welcome and open to others. This may be one on the list that I I struggle with. I love being around people. I do. But to open my home up means our house has to be cleaned and, and lots of other things. Nevertheless, the pastor should not be someone who has people at arm's length. Pastor should be someone who is accessible, hospitable, caring for those in the congregation. Uh, this next uh, qualification is regards his teaching ability. He's able to teach. Uh, ironically, this is the 
primary distinction between overseers and deacons in the next these two paragraphs. The primary one is ability to teach. What's fascinating as you continue to read through this list is D.A. Carson put it this way. Uh, the, this qualification list for overseers is remarkable in how unremarkable it is. If you think about what Paul is expecting of the person who would be overseer, he doesn't dive into the specific competencies of what we might think of in looking for a pastor. Can he run a business? Can he manage finances? Can he, uh, can he, can he preach well? Can he talk well? Is he someone that's charismatic? Does he draw people to him? And, and over the years that I've been in ministry, both at Mud Creek Baptist and here at Wilkesboro Baptist, I've had a, a number of opportunities to interact with churches who are in pastor searches for a variety of reasons. Sometimes that's as a, in a consulting role. Other times it's in the role of, before I came here, interviewing with search committees. And it's sometimes fascinating the types of things that churches seem to be looking for when they're looking for a pastor. And quite often churches are looking for things that don't fit this list or aren't really a primary qualification on this list. They're looking for outward elements rather than an inward character that Paul seems to highlight. Nevertheless, a competency is that he's to be able to teach. Pastors, elders, overseers in the church are to be able to teach. That doesn't mean that every person who's called to be a pastor has to teach regularly. Let me give an instance of this. Uh, pastor Tad. You know, he preaches semi-regularly here at the church when I'm, when I'm away. I'll be away next week with my son. He's got a spelling bee that he's going to be doing in, in Charlotte, a regional spelling bee. So I'll be down there with him. Pastor Tad will be preaching next week. Uh, Pastor Tad doesn't preach every week, but he's able to preach. Does that make sense? An, an ability to teach. Why? Because our responsibility is overseers. My responsibility is an overseer and a pastor is to open up God's Word and say, this is what God says. And this is what it means, and this is how we put it into practice in our lives. So in looking for a pastor, the quality of being able to teach is tremendously important. Paul continues to move on in the list regarding his temperance. The overseer is not to be a drunkard, not to be given to wine, addicted to wine. Um, Personally, I'll be honest with you, I've never touched alcohol, save in a medicinal format like NyQuil. I've never had reason to. Well, I take that back. A hot toddy. I've had a hot toddy over the years in order to deal with a cough. My first one came at two. And there's a story about that. My mom loved to tell that story when we were growing up. Nothing would work to break the cough up that we had. And my mom, being a pastor's wife, Southern Baptist pastor's wife, teetotaler, teetotaler, absolutely teetotaler. My dad, a teetotaler. Then the doctor looked at her and said, you need to find somebody who's got some whiskey and put it in a, a, little, a, a little thing with honey, and, and it'll break up the cough. And sure enough, it broke up the cough. I, I, don't, I don't believe that we need to drink alcohol. I'm not one of those guys who's a teetotaler in the sense that I, I think we ought to be legalistic about it. I think you can make a case in Scripture, or Scripture doesn't add, automatically make a case. Everybody ought to abstain from alcohol all the time. But I'll be honest with you, no pastor should be controlled by anything outside of himself. I've, I've never touched it, don't ever intend to touch it. J. Oswald Sanders put it this way, a leader cannot allow a secret indulgence that would undermine public witness. And so if me taking a drink of alcohol would damage my ministry here and could potentially turn into drunkenness at some point in my future, then you never, never need to touch this stuff. So not a drunkard. 
How about this one? His temper and his temperament. The next section, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Uh, A pastor shouldn't be one known for his fighting. Now, uh, let me pull back from this just a second. I think there are times that a pastor, his ministry, his responsibility requires him to stand firm. Paul made it very clear that we're to fight the good fight, the fight of faith. That means that we're fighting, we've got to realize who we're fighting with though. In the language that Paul's using, he's talking about language with reflection to spiritual warfare and with relationship to truth. Listen, I'm not going to compromise the truth of Scripture. And I'm going to do my best as a pastor to stand against the spiritual wickedness that is prevalent in our world, whether it's through a demonic influence or through cultural influence. And we ought to fight those things. But pastors ought not be violent and quarrelsome in their regular interaction with people. That's not who we're supposed to be. Jesus was gentle and lowly. He didn't pull back from commenting against the spiritual self-righteousness of the Pharisees. But he also didn't seek to stir up and cause fights just to cause fights. And too many pastors get, get this kind of out of whack. Uh, Mark Driscoll, I think, was one of those in the rise and fall of Mars Hill. He followed that kind of approach. I saw a pastor the other day, a clip of a pastor preaching in his congregation. Evidently, there were some people he called witches in his congregation. I don't know the, all, all the context of that. But he was yelling at them from the pulpit saying that he was going to kick them out of the church and had this real kind of mean-spirited tone that was, uh, that was kind of coming out in the way that he preached. And um, that's not who the pastor is supposed to be. We're not to be known by our fighting. We're not to be known by our quarrels. We're not to be known by our disagreements. And there are some times that we need to be honest and truthful. I had to send an email off to someone this week that, that, that wasn't the easiest email I've written, and it was a little bit confrontational. But it, I, I even wrestled with that in, in light of this text because we're not to be quarrelsome. In other words, we're to try to find a way to be right with one another rather than try to find a way to, to win over somebody else. The pastor's not to be quarrelsome, not to be constantly engaged in frustrations and anger and tension. Uh, A next qualification is his attitude toward money. He's not to be a lover of money. Paul would go on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, to make the case that that the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so the pastor is not to be someone who loves money, who seeks after money, who seeks after gain. Unfortunately, this has been abused too over the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Uh, pastors and leaders and denominations have sought power and influence. You see that in Roman Catholicism and the money and the wealth that, that came up underneath the papacy and it corrupted the church in all too many instances through the Middle Ages and even beyond. There are sometimes pastors who, who, who want more money and seek more money and long after more money, and, and, and that's problematic. That's not who a pastor is supposed to be, plain and simple. It's not wrong to give pastors compensation. Nothing wrong with that at all. Paul talks about that in 1, Corinthians chapter, or 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy 5. He talks about the, the fact that compensation is appropriate, but the pastor shouldn't seek out uh, any way to be paid more or to get more. Or to, it shouldn't be his focus and his driving passion. I, I, I had a, a mentor who put it this way. As a pastor, he said, we don't get paid to do ministry. He said, we get paid so we can do ministry. In other words, the compensation is so that the pastor doesn't have to be distracted by all the other, another job for that matter. 
to be able to pastor the congregation. It's one way to look at it. But the pastor shouldn't be a lover of money. In other words, it shouldn't drive who he is. His domestic discipline, that's the next qualification. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now here's one of the reasons this list is not an absolute checklist. Okay, I am going to make a moment of confession here. Sometimes my children are not submissive. And if you've been, ever been a parent, you, you understand that too. Okay, so does that automatically disqualify me from being your pastor because sometimes my children don't obey? I don't think Paul was getting at uh, this sense that every child, that, that the idea that if a child disobeys once, it disqualifies his parent from, from uh, serving as pastor. The idea is if a pastor can't lead his home, he can't lead a church. If he's going to push his children away from God because he's mean and legalistic, or because he's abusive or controlling, or because he's just plain too nice and never never says that this is what needs to happen in a home, how in the world can that particular man lead a congregation of people? And this is God's church. This is God's household. This is God's family. So the indication is that he has to lead his own household well. I told you this when I came here to be your pastor. My priority list is God, family, and then taking care of my own health, and then the church. And I believe that priority list should still stay in line. I mean, I have wonderful responsibilities and privileges to be your pastor, but the best pastors also are good husbands and fathers. Bad husbands and bad fathers make bad pastors, and I struggle with this. I mean, just just be quite honest with you, I don't think I've attained this. My point is I've got to struggle for that, for being a godly husband and for being a godly father in the life of my children. His domestic discipline. Self-mastery reveals discipline, but family mastery reveals relational competency. It's the idea that when we are looking for someone to lead a congregation, how do they interact with their wife? How do they interact with their children? Right? How about this next qualification, his spiritual maturity? Paul puts it this way. He said he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Meaning that pride and arrogance and ego can easily attach themselves to people in the ministry. Uh, Too many pastors have fallen uh, because of a sense of pride. And this isn't just true for those that are recent converts. Pastors who have been a long time in ministry who have still struggled with pridefulness and ego being a a diminishment of their ministry. Let me illustrate it this way. I have the privilege of teaching at Freedland Baptist Bible College one day a week, about a half a year. Half the year. And it's amazing how many students enter school knowing everything and leave school knowing nothing. And what I mean by that is they enter Bible college thinking they've got theology figured out, and they leave Bible college with more questions about their theology than they walked in with their dogmatic answers. And I say that to acknowledge that there's a sense of humility that comes with knowing a little bit more and following Christ. In other words, there's a spiritual maturity that must be expected of those who are pastoring. This final uh, characteristic is this, his outside reputation. He must be thought of well by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or snare of the devil. It's not that he has to get along with absolutely everybody in every instance. It's not the point. It's not that he's a compromiser. It's just that he is competent relationally outside the body of believers. Let me put it this way. I could spend all of my time doing church things. 
studying and teaching and, and, and praying and ministering and visiting hospitals. I can do all that. But if I'm not outside the church to some degree, I'm not able to fulfill the mission that God's called me to fulfill as a follower of Jesus, making disciples, sharing the gospel. And, and what does that mean? I've got to interact with people outside the church, the body of believers. And when I do, my reputation ought to be right. In other words, holy. I ought to be compassionate. I ought to be a careful reputation. In other words, that the pastor is someone who's got to be able to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the qualification list. Now, one thing you could do for me and for your pastoral staff is pray that we'll exhibit these qualities over and over again. Pray for us in these areas to make sure that we're the kind of people that God would have us to be. Let me give you a third consideration. We'll close on this. Finally, I want you to consider the church that the overseer serves. This is a fascinating, fascinating observation here that God struck me with this week. In verse 5, Paul wrote it this way, verse 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? Consider the church. A lot of times we use language like my church, our church. I remember, uh, I remember driving around with Nathan a few years ago and he would say, Daddy, Daddy, your church is a big church. And facility-wise, yeah, he's exactly right. Numbers-wise, I guess, people-wise, he's exactly right. But your church... My church. And over the years, that's phraseology that we've become very familiar with. Why don't you come visit my church? And the interesting thing about the New Testament is while that language is not inherently wrong, it's not wrong to say this is our church, this is is the church I attend, Uh, the possessive language in the New Testament is not for us and our church because this isn't truly my church. Or your church. This is the church God sent His Son Jesus to die for. I didn't die for Wilkesboro Baptist Church. I'm not your Redeemer and your Savior. No matter how much money I've given to the church over the years, or money you've given to the church over the years, or investment you've given to the church over the years, none of us are redeemed by your influence and your, your involvement. It's not your church. It's not my church. And what that means structurally is that I don't run the church. Deacons don't run the church. Sunday school teachers don't run the church. You as a congregation member don't run the church. We have a Savior. He runs the church. He's the leader. He's in charge. And our responsibility, mine as a leader, as the overseer of the church, yours as a congregation member, is for us to bow our hearts and be submissive to King Jesus and realize this isn't my church to do with as I please. In other words, I can't be selfish about things that go on here and happen here. It's not for me to control. We've got to be submissive to our Lord and Savior, realizing it's about Him. That's a perspective issue that I think is tremendously important in the text. So we need to be reminded of that. Let me, let me encourage you with something that I read this week. So I, in, in, in pastoral leadership, one of the things I've always tried to do is compare myself. And I, I mean that in a, in a healthy sense. Learn from people who are doing a good job of it. Think about those who are struggling with challenges that I don't have. And I got a reading a Christianity Today article that came out just a little over a week ago about the pastors of churches in the Ukraine. 
And that one pastor that I referenced earlier, he said, we and all the other ministers, we stay in the city, Kiev, the capital city, the city that the Russian forces are doing their dead level best to try to overtake. This pastor said, we stay in the city. We stay in the city to encourage our people. We stay in the city to give them a sense of calmness and confidence. We stay in the city to pray for them and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The convicting part of that for me, folks, is simply this. I love Wilkesboro Baptist Church. This is a pretty easy church to pastor because we're not in the middle of war. We're not, we're, not, we're not fighting about a lot of things in our church. Corporately in the world, yeah, in our society, absolutely, but not in our church. And um, I think as followers of Jesus, we just ought to be thankful for what God's blessed us with and prayerful for those that that's not their experience. I think we ought to pray for those pastors that, that really are having some significant life-changing events going on in and among the people that they serve and lead. Those pastors remind me of this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, It is the mark of a grown-up man as compared with a callow youth that he finds his center of gravity wherever he happens to be in the moment. However much he longs for the object of his desire, it cannot prevent him from staying at his post and doing his duty. Those are the men that are staying at their post and doing their duty. We've got to pray for them. Let me give you one last application. Belong. I love how Paul put this description, God's church. Later on in the same chapter, he's going to say, the church is the household of God. Why is it so, so important that we get leadership right in the church? Overseers and deacons. Why is it so important that we get our theology right and our doctrine right? Why is it so important that we get the gospel right and communicate it well? Because folks, we're God's family. And I want you to hear this. As a follower of Jesus and a member of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, this is where you belong. You belong around other believers. Imperfect as we are, difficult as any of us can be at times, struggling to try to figure out what it is that God wants for us and our congregation. Yeah, but we have a place to belong. I was talking with Tad this week, and he came back from a sabbatical one of the things that, that so fascinated me about his observation is he said this to me. He said, I missed my church community. I, I missed the people that I've invested in for, for 14 years. I missed them. It was a blessing to be able to come back. Folks, this is where we as followers of Jesus belong. We belong in a gathered worship experience, singing and praising the Lord. We belong together, serving and interacting with one another. The 11 o'clock service, we're going to baptize four little ones and an adult who have said they want to belong here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. They want this to be the place where they grow up spiritually. I encourage you. This is a place where you can belong. Pray for us. Help us. Support us. Encourage. This is a place where you belong. And because you're here, because you belong, I want you to hear this. We as the leaders of the church, we love you. We care about you. And for those of you watching at home, if you're not back in the room, I don't want you to know we still love you. We miss you. We want you to be here. We want to see you. We want to know what's going on in your life. We want to care about you. Folks, this is a church where, as imperfect as we are, you can belong. 
You can be, you can be who you are in glorifying our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen for that? Uh, I'm going to ask Dustin to come back and lead us in an invitation hymn. Maybe you want to pray for somebody. Maybe the circumstances in the Ukraine have just burdened your heart. You don't know what to pray. Pray for those pastors there. Pray for me, but I'm not dealing with anything to the extent that some of those pastors and leaders are. Lift them up before the Lord. Think about what's going on. Pray that we'll be this type of person. Uh, and, and maybe you want to pray for somebody who's not here. Come to this altar and pray for their soul, for their commitment to the Lord. Stand with me, if you will. Father, I thank you for this text, this convicting text in my own life that reminds me and reminds us the type of person that should be leading a congregation. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to live up to these expectations and qualifications. Teach us from your word, Heavenly Father, and I, I thank you for a church that we can belong to. I thank you for a church that supports and encourages and defends the gospel and preaches the gospel. I thank you for these friends here that are with me, this community of believers you put me with. Thank you, Heavenly Father, and help us to be faithful to you, spreading the gospel of your Son. Father, I do pray for my fellow pastors across the world who are dealing with persecution or war or devastation. Help them in these moments of leadership, strengthen them, sustain them, for your glory, and for the message of your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.